When Henry Tudor defeated Richard III at the Battle of Bosworth Field in 1485, he defeated one of the last remaining Plantagenets in England. The crown was Henry's for the taking. He married Elizabeth York, the daughter of the York King Edward IV, and in so doing, he united the warring houses of York and Lancaster. Henry Tudor became King Henry VII. It seemed at first like the wars were over, and that the marriage of Lancaster to York had neutralized the conflict that had ravaged the English monarchy for 32 years. Yet Henry's position on the throne was not so secure, for there was one person whose very existence threatened Henry's claim to rule. It was a York prince, thought to have been murdered years ago, though it was clear now that he had come back from the dead. You're listening to Race and Tyler Talk Wikipedia, episode 92, Henry VII. This episode is part of a larger series about the Wars of the Roses. If you haven't already, start by listening to the episodes on the Plantagenets, Henry VI, Edward IV, Elizabeth Woodville, and Richard III. Okay, Tyler, our getting to know you question today. I want to know how you eat. And what I mean by that, <laughs> what I mean by that is, so let's say sitting down at a delicious dinner, you've got, let's say, mashed potatoes and some roasted carrots and some delicious corn and some, I don't know, a pork chop or whatever. Let's say that's your plate in front of you. How do you decide what to eat first? In what order do you proceed? Do you have like a technique? And the reason I'm asking this is because I kind of thought everybody did it the way I did it. I do it. And I found out that that's not the case. So I want to know how you how you approach a plate of food. I can confidently say I've never been asked this before. So <laughs> I really appreciate this question. Uh, and in thinking about it, it actually took me back to a childhood memory. So I'll tell you about that story. Uh, it was like a memory unlocked when I started thinking about it. My answer, though, is I don't think I have much of a method. If I was going to sit down with a plate of a pork chop and some mashed potatoes and some vegetables, I think I would automatically pick the potatoes first because everybody likes mashed potatoes. Those are one of my favorite foods. Um, and they're easy to get at. You don't have to like dig in with the fork and knife and everything. You just go right in with a spoon or anything that you're holding, I guess. Sure. Um, and I think also part of the method that I loosely have is I try to eat the vegetables quickly because the odds are it's my least favorite thing on the plate. <laughs> and I don't want that to be like the last bite. Sure. So that takes me back to a childhood memory, actually. I remember going to fast food. I think it was Wendy's or something with my mom and my siblings. And we all got little, you know, dollar menu meals. And I had a chicken nuggets and I had a French fries and I had a drink. And I remember my mom telling me, like, make sure you eat your chicken nuggets. Like, you can't just eat the French fries, you know? And I remember defending in that minute, I was like, well, mom, 
I like the chicken nuggets the most. I want to eat those last. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And so, and that was true. I wasn't making it up. Like I wanted to eat the fries first because I knew that the chicken nuggets were going to be the best bite. Uh, the you know, like the last bite of food is the one that sits with you, right? Uh, and I, honestly, I, I think I still follow that today. I try to leave the last bite to be the best one. Okay, yeah. Um, so, I. I approve of your method, first of all, <laughs> which I'm sure you were just dying to get my approval. Um, I have run across recently people who are like, well, obviously you just eat the most delicious thing first and then you just like, oh. and I, I can't abide that. So my answer <laughs> is pretty similar to yours. Um, and I think all, you know, good hearted Americans out there, which is, I don't know. I feel I I'm pretty rigorous about it. Actually. I, rank the food on my plate from what I'm most interested in eating to what I'm least interested in eating. And then I start at the bottom and work backwards. So if I, you know, if the mashed potato or if the corn is the thing I'm least excited, then you start there. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I, I fully agree with that. I'm yeah, like, I'm going to eat every bite of corn before I even take one bite of mashed potato. <laughs> yeah. You work backwards and <laughs> Um, and then if, you know, the thing you're saving, you're saving for last, you save the best for last. Um, this has also caused problems for me as well, because so if you're sitting at a meal like that and 10 or 15 minutes have gone by and you, you know, there are things you haven't got to just like, yeah. you know, like what your mom said, I've had like people like my wife or my mom, like lean over and like take something off my plate. And they're like, well, oh, you, haven't no. even, you haven't even touched your whatever your pork chop and i'm like that's because i'm saving it because i'm not a sociopath because you eat the pork chop (laughs) but anyway we recently we had some of uh, my nieces come stay at my house recently and we had like we had a kind of a, a an array of food everybody took their plates and then i realized like oh these are probably going first because people like them the least and everyone was like what? <laughs> and I was like, you know, how you eat the thing you don't like the most at the front of the meal. And everyone was like, I'm not so sure that that's as universal as you think it is. But at least you and I are on the same page. Which we, is are, we are absolutely this on the same page, which is, of course, no surprise. Uh, but that's funny. I just kind of assumed everybody would do it that same way. I mean, you want to eat the corn last? Like, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I guess if you if you know you're going to be like, so full that you're not going to be able to finish then maybe it's like well then i've got to get my favorite in first but then like you said your last bite is going to be something that you don't prefer right for me by the way is corn uh tandem here i have to say i think corn is just one of my least favorite vegetables i have tried to eat more corn this summer because it's a summer food (laughs) and i'm trying to eat it while it's in season and I just do not like it. I feel like it's like eating little teeth <laughs> and they're kind of, <laughs> they're, they're like kind of too sweet. Like they don't really jive with the other ingredients and in whatever they're in. Also, I found Guatemala, the corn was just overwhelming. So that could be part mm. of it. But, yeah. Uh, for our listeners, uh, Guatemala is known as the land of corn in the ancient uh mayan languages so they they treat corn as uh one of their staple foods yeah 
anyways, I, I don't like corn. Um, but always eat the best bite last, I have to say, right? Yeah, I, I mean, like I said, I, I thought it was a universal assumption, but... <laughs> How much um, mixing on your plate do you do? Do you try to keep things separate or do you mix them in a little bit? I'll mix. I'm not opposed to mixing. Yeah, I think there's certain foods that are appropriate to mix. I love to mix mashed potatoes with meat or gravy or whatever. But Sure, yeah. I guess it depends like, on what it is. At this, this particular plate we're describing, I feel like mashed potato is a good, like, um, for instance, if you have mashed potato and some green beans or some corn, you can get kind of a scoop, a little, a little bite of mashed potatoes and then sort of bind it with some corn or some green beans. <laughs> and then you get, you know, cause it's, it's kind of a, a little, uh, a little multi bite there. So yeah, I'm, I'm not, I don't, I, I know some people are like, my food can't touch. I can't interact. And I don't feel yeah, like that. I'm not like that. By the way, you just mentioned, I think my second least favorite vegetable, which is green beans. I do not. Really? Don't care for those. I, I really try to eat my vegetables, but these two in particular, I could live long without. So this is really funny and possibly the one of our, you know, on the short list of, of um, divergent opinions that we have, <laughs> because my whole life, my family has had, we grow not a ton of vegetables, but we've always had a garden of some variety. Oh, and nice the only two we we've kind of experimented with some different things we go in and out of trying stuff um but the two things that we always have are corn and green beans corn and green do you grow your own corn we grow our own corn and our own oh green beans and i before you close the chapter on corn forever <laughs> you need to come have some corn grown in my soil and cooked up the way we do it and if you don't like it then then that's fine but you got to try it sometime because we we i think we do corn really well well what's the recipe do you like do grilled corn or something we don't grill it we do i mean we we will just like eat it off the cob off and the i will cob. tell you that i have never i can't eat corn or green beans i really struggle to Unless eat it they're any, from there anywhere any other way yeah like can't like corn from a can is it's like vile. It's yeah, so, it's, and canned green beans are even more vile. Yeah, I'm not a I'm I'm not a huge fan, and um, but like we just got back from a trip up to see my my folks up in Eager, and almost every time we come back, we come back with jars that my mom like canned herself of green beans from their garden. Oh, see that does sound nice. Okay, yeah. I'll uh, I'll take you up on that. Because... Yeah, next time you're there, you're gonna have to give them a second shot. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds good. All right, so we are continuing on in our series about the Wars of the Roses today, uh, winding down the series, because at this point, uh, in all the episodes that we've done, we have now covered 70 years of English history, starting with the Battle of Agincourt in 1415. And then last time, we talked about the Battle of Bosworth Field, uh, when Richard III was killed in 1485. Uh, we also talked about the reign of the York King, Edward IV, and how Richard kind of cannibalized things after Edward died by murdering his nephews and taking the crown for himself. Uh, in the Battle of Bosworth Field, Richard became the last king of England ever to be killed in battle. 
And by the way, race, I just learned this, but did you know we are the same age as Richard III when he died? He oh, was 32. Wow. I, I think you're 32, right? I'm yeah, that's 32. right. Yeah. So uh, it's not too late to take the <laughs> crown of England. <laughs> we have a little bit of time left. Yeah, I can't decide if that makes me feel old or young. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, the Battle of Bosworth Field was the end of many things, in addition to ending Richard III's reign. Many historians referred to that battle as kind of a conventional end to the Middle Ages in general, and they mark the time after the Battle of Bosworth Field as the beginning of a new era, uh, probably what we would call Renaissance-era England, and anything before Bosworth Field had been the Middle Ages. Hmm. The Battle of Bosworth Field also was really the end of the Wars of the Roses themselves. Henry Tudor defeats Richard III, like we discussed. Uh, he marries the York princess, Elizabeth of York, and he establishes the Tudor dynasty, which will pass through his son, Henry VIII, through Edward VI, Mary I, uh, if you remember, we talked about her as Bloody Mary in one of our episodes, and Elizabeth I, uh, the last monarch of the Tudor dynasty. So we know now that the Battle of Bosworth Field was the end of the Wars of the Roses and that Henry got what he wanted. But at the time, it, it wasn't necessarily a proven fact. Like it, di it didn't seem like, oh, the wars are over. All yeah. that it seemed was that a different king had taken the throne, and that was Henry Tudor. So during Henry's lifetime, he was just as paranoid about losing the throne as any of his other predecessors had been. And he still had rivals and claimants that he was going to have to defeat in order to secure his position. So we'll talk today about his reign, uh, the dynasty that he established, and then some of the most formidable opponents that he had to face and conquer in order for the dynasty to be secure. So in 1485, Henry defeats Richard III, and immediately after, he has a fabulous coronation. And this is important because Henry Tudor is basically an unknown. Think back to the episodes that we've done so far. I mean, how many times did we even talk about Henry Tudor? We tried to shoehorn him in little stories here and there about, hey, this guy is like coming up on the sidelines. But he doesn't have much to do in the story. Yeah. No one really knows who he is. Uh, his lineage is very, let's not call it suspect, but his claim to the throne is very flimsy. His uh, paternal lineage comes out of Wales and has really nothing to do with the throne of England. And then his mother's lineage comes out of um, a bastard line of the House of Lancaster. So really a line that uh, doesn't even really have a lot of reason to be on the throne. So as a result, he's really got to prove it with this coronation. It has to be absolutely decked out. And it is. They hire goldsmiths, cloth merchants, embroiderers, silk women, tailors, laborers, boatmen, and saddlers. They spend hundreds of pounds on yards of velvet, satin, silk, and royal purple, crimson, and black. They make it into jackets, robes, cushions, and curtains, all for the event. Henry's uh, retinue gets special hats ordered with ostrich feathers, and they get fancy boots made of fine Spanish leather. 
And they even dress up the horses in beautiful red velvet. And the red velvet has tassels on the end and silk buttons going all the way down the back. They commission 105 silver and gilt portcullises, which is the family symbol of Margaret Beaufort, Henry's mother. And they give these portcullises out as gifts for selected guests who get to attend the coronation. Then they also call on ancient emblems of England to help build up Henry's claim here and solidify the imagery that Henry is kind of fulfilling an ancient role. So they display the arms of St. Edmund and St. Edward the Confessor, one of the most well-regarded Anglo-Saxon kings um, in English history. But then they also make a nod to Henry's Welsh heritage. So they bring in um, new images from Wales, specifically a lot of dragons are commissioned on the tapestries. Mm. And if you're familiar with the flag of Wales. Was that one of the ones that you learned, Race, the Welsh flag? So since Wales is not an independent nation, it's not on like the big list that I use. I use the UN recognized list, but I have seen the flag of Wales. It's very striking. And yeah, it's got a a great dragon on it. It's a great flag, I think, right? Yeah, Yeah, a big red dragon on a green field with a white sky. Um, And so yeah, lots of dragons everywhere. Um, And then the greatest sums of money that they spend for the coronation are spent commissioning red roses detailed with gold and embroidery. (laughs) And the red rose is very important here because Henry's lineage comes through Margaret Beaufort, who comes from the House of Lancaster. And the rose symbol that the House of Lancaster used was the red rose, whereas the House of York used the white rose. So this might be late in the game to ask this question, but I know that um, I know we've talked about the roses being symbolic of the two houses. Did you ever explain to us why one was red and one was white? Or is it just kind of like that's just how it shook out? You know what? I don't actually know the answer to that. <laughs> yeah. Um, kind of up. I'm going to look it up real quick. <laughs> okay. Well, what I can say about the roses is it was the red rose of the House of Lancaster that was more um, more used. It was older as a symbol. It was more commonly used for that house in their heraldry. Whereas the white rose, I think, was more of a reaction against the red rose. Gotcha. And when you look into the... A lot of the time that we discussed in the middle there, no one was even really mentioning the roses. That hadn't fully emerged as a symbol of the houses until much later about the time that we're suggesting here with Henry Tudor. And that's a big surprise, right? Because it's the Wars of the Roses. You'd think that from the beginning, people are either choosing red or white. Um, But we'll actually talk about that in our final episode, um, about how real that dichotomy even was. So great question. So the coronation goes off without a hitch. Uh, It's splendorous, fantastic. The crown touches Henry Tudor's head and Margaret Beaufort, his mother, begins to weep marvelously. She's very proud that her son has, against all odds, taken the throne of England. You know, this this might be a new answer when people ask, like, what historical event would you like to be a fly on the wall for? I think the coronation of Henry VII is a cool answer. 
That's a really cool answer, right? And now we know the subtext of that coronation, which yeah. is very spicy. I, I can imagine that even though it was extravagant, it must have been very tense. Yeah. Because how many coronations have we now had in right. <laughs> 70 years? Right? <laughs> 70 years, yeah. Right, yeah. So I agree. I think that would be cool. Uh, Margaret Beaufort, as the queen's mother, or excuse me, the king's mother, is held in the highest regard. And she has returned lands that Richard III had taken away from her and placed in her husband's name. She is declared a special kind of legal status called femme soleil, which gives her total independence as a woman. Uh, I believe that she's one of the few women who actually held a title in her own right and not dependent on that of her husband. Uh, she receives a very fancy fancy mansion on the banks of the Thames. And she's treated like a demi-queen, honestly. She's allowed to dress like a queen consort. And she's allowed to sign her letters Margaret R., which is an explicitly royal style. We have to call out at this point a conspiracy theory about Margaret Beaufort, which is a really juicy one that is explored um, in the show, The White Queen and the White Princess. And that theory is that it wasn't Richard III who murdered the princes in the tower. It was actually Margaret Beaufort, uh -huh. um, which is a wild thing to think about because the princes in the tower's murder was so egregious and offensive and demonic that all it really did was undercut Richard III's claim to rule, right? Because no one wants a nephew murderer to sit on the throne. And so then the conspiracy theory includes this idea that Margaret did it because that was the way of uh, taking Richard out, really. Fascinating idea. It's really very unlikely that it actually happened. But it does say a lot about Margaret Beaufort that people believed this because uh, she was seen, I think, as maybe not as ruthless as some of the other um, women in the story that we've seen so far, but very willing to do whatever it took for her son to get on the throne. Henry fulfills one of the promises that he made before um, the Battle of Bosworth Field, which is he marries Elizabeth of York. And she is the daughter, you'll remember, of Edward IV and Elizabeth Woodville. So she is the valuable princess that we talked about, how she's the heir to the York. Uh, she's not the heir in that she uh, is not a man, but she is the York princess and is coming from royal York blood. And so she's kind of the best candidate that Henry could have picked here because uh, she's a princess that reminds everybody of Edward IV, who they liked, uh, but she's also getting married to him and he's coming from the House of Lancaster. And so they're kind of unifying the two houses there and are putting an end to the wars. For this marriage, he commissions a new rose to be designed and it's not the white rose of york and it's not the red rose of lancaster but remember in the very beginning of the series i talked about there being a third rose mm -hmm. we're going to get to that third rose right now he commissions this third rose which they call the tudor rose and you can look up a picture of it but it is a white rose superimposed on a red rose 
So the red rose is bigger and then the white rose is smaller in the middle. Oh, yeah. And the way that Dan Jones books puts it is that anybody who looked at this would immediately know what this was doing, which was we are putting an end to the conflict of the two houses by unifying them in this one peaceful image. So Henry's marriage to Elizabeth was very critical for his claim as the new king. And Dan Jones just puts this really succinctly, so I'm going to read the segment of the paragraph that he has here. But he says, Henry's marriage to Elizabeth was not simply a matter of his word nor of public opinion. It was vital to his whole royal manifesto. It was no secret that Henry's claim in blood as a Lancastrian king was weak. He was not a sufficiently obvious heir to Henry VI to be accepted for who he was. In large part, Henry had been made king because he was a candidate for those seeking a replacement for Edward IV. By marrying Edward's eldest daughter, it was essential to holding that support and trying to restore some stability to the English royal line. That's a very good point to point out because, like it said, Henry is nobody. No one knows who he is. All they really remember is Richard III was a bad king who came after the good king, Edward IV. And Edward is from the House of York. And Henry Tudor isn't related to Edward IV at all, right? So marrying Elizabeth, Edward's son, is not just like a nice thing to do to unify the houses. It's pretty critical to establishing his image as continuing the line of good kingship that did exist from Edward IV. Yeah, one of the good ones. Exactly. So Henry and Elizabeth have a son. And in a way of echoing back to the ancient kings of Britain that they're trying to... uh, evoke this image of legitimacy, they name the son Arthur. So his son is Prince Arthur. Um, And everything's fine and dandy. He's been crowned. He's married Elizabeth. The fighting is over. But even still, and, you know, he has a son, so that's good. It's always good to have a son. But even still, Henry Tudor's reign is not yet secure. And there are people out there who want to see him fall. So who's even left at this point in the family tree of the Plantagenets? Who can even claim the throne because they've been related to Edward III? I thought this was... uh, a question worth digging into and little did I know it's a very dangerous venture because I started clicking through the family tree on Wikipedia and very soon got lost because if you're looking at Edward III and all of his descendants, everybody has like eight to 10 children who all have eight to 10 children. And then some of them are bastards and then some of them die childless and it just becomes such a mess. It, it I went down so many rabbit holes. But I did find a couple of important answers that are good to note. Um, when you look at the family tree, and I'll try to do this. Uh, I know it's difficult to, to follow a family tree if you're not looking at it visually. But I'll try to clarify it as much as possible. And it is worth looking at, by the way, if you want to take a look on uh, on Wikipedia. But... 
the only way that we can really go about this realistically is to look at the male line of the family tree. Because if you include the women as well, there's so many options. And there are also a lot of claims that uh, went nowhere because at the time, people weren't really making claims to the female lines. So we'll look first at the male lines, keeping in mind, though, that there are many monarchs who did take the throne because of the female lines, and we'll point those out as we get to them. So let's take a look at the House of York. Edward IV, right? He was he died in the last episode. He left behind two princes, and they were both killed in the tower. And those were the only sons of Edward IV. So we don't have any remaining males from the line that comes from Edward IV. Now we look at his father, right? Richard of York. Richard of York uh, has four boys altogether. One is Edward IV, and we've already realized that he doesn't have anybody left. He's died, and his sons have died. Uh, Richard of York also had a son named Edmund, who died in battle with his father and had no children. Uh, we talked last time about Richard III, one of the sons of Richard of York, and he, of course, died in the Battle of Bosworth Field. And if you remember as well, his only legitimate son had died of illness. So he didn't have any boys who could take the throne. Then Richard of York also has the other son, George, Duke of Clarence. Remember, he's the one who died by execution, purportedly in a vat of wine. He did have a surviving son who was, as such, a legitimate male-descended Plantagenet claimant to the throne. So we'll put him to the side and we'll keep an eye on him. And his name is Edward Plantagenet, if you can believe that, yet another Edward. <laughs> uh, so holding on to Edward Plantagenet on the side. If you go back further than Richard of York and you go to his father and his father and his father, you're looking at the House of York that descended from Edmund Duke of York, who was the son of Edward III. And looking at all of the children of Edmund Duke of York, there are no boys left, uh, mostly because some of his line uh, died childless and some are the ones that we've already talked about, Richard of York and his sons. And we already know that there's only one remaining candidate from the House of York. So we'll look at the House of Lancaster then. This is the other house coming of Edward III uh, through the line of John of Gaunt. And John of Gaunt had a bunch of sons. Uh, one was Henry IV, and he was the king um, that gave birth to Henry V, who we talked about in this series. And obviously we know Henry V had the one son, Henry VI, and he had the one son, the Prince Edward Lancaster. And we know what happened to them. Edward Lancaster was killed in battle. Henry VI was murdered in the tower. And Henry V, of course, died um, young after the Battle of Agincourt. Uh, so that line is extinguished. The Henry IV line, there's nobody left from that line. Then there's also the John Beaufort line. John Beaufort is interesting because he had bastard children that became legitimized when he married his mistress. And he has a bunch of sons mm -hmm. that from this line, they go on to get killed in the wars. And they we didn't mention them all in the battles, but many of those boys fought for different sides, typically for the House of Lancaster, um, in the wars, and then they were killed without having any sons. Also out of this line comes Margaret Beaufort. 
And that's pretty important to note because first of all, she's a woman. This is not a male descended line. Um, and also this is a bastard line. So this is a line that was from John Beaufort's mistress, but eventually the line was legitimized and the parliament decided, okay, you guys are legitimate now. So, you know, it's not quite like what it would, would be typically, but they did have everybody agree. You guys are legitimate. Uh, that's the house of Lancaster. So they don't really have any options either. The only option really is Henry Tudor, who did take the throne. So important to keep uh, him in the bucket as well. Edward III also had a fifth son, Thomas, Duke of Gloucester. But his male line died when his son died. And so there were no male lines left from Thomas, Duke of Gloucester. And then if you go back to any of the other lines after Edward III, those lines are also extinguished. So there's Edward the Black Prince and Richard II, but they were extinguished. Lionel, Duke of Clarence, didn't have any boys. We've already talked about the House of York and the House of Lancaster as only having Henry Tudor and Edward Plantagenet. And then this line of Thomas, Duke of Gloucester, doesn't have anybody either. And I was fascinated to see that uh, really there are just the two. So if you do look, there's only Henry Tudor and there's only Edward Plantagenet. And you can actually keep going further back. Like you can say, okay, what about Edward II's brothers? Did he have any brothers? Like what about his dad and his dad and his dad? And you can go back all the way back centuries to the year 1100 something to the very first Plantagenet king. We talked about him in our Eleanor of Aquitaine episode. He married Eleanor of Aquitaine and all the boys in those lines all died without any potential claimant to the throne. Wow. So this really does boil it down to the fact that through the male lines, the house of Plantagenet is just about extinguished. And the only people left are Henry Tudor, who took the crown and isn't really a male line descendant, remember, and Edward Plantagenet, the son of George, Duke of Clarence. So important to keep, keep an eye on him. When Richard III was killed in battle in 1485 at the Battle of Bosworth Field, Edward Plantagenet, son of, Duke, son of George, Duke of Clarence, was only 10 years old, so still a boy, not old enough to really make his own claim on the throne. Richard III takes the throne and he murders his two nephews, the sons of Edward IV, but he does not murder Edward Plantagenet, the son of George, Duke of Clarence. Instead, he keeps him prisoner. And why he decided to do that is kind of amazing because it seems like he was just going to kill all of his nephews, but he decided not to kill Edward Plantagenet. Hmm. Then Henry, the, Henry Tudor, of course, kills Richard III, takes the crown, and does not release Edward Plantagenet from prison, but instead decides to keep him there. Then in 1490, Edward Plantagenet is 15 years old, and he's confirmed as Earl of Warwick. So he's getting the title that was due to him as son of George, Duke of Clarence, even though George, Duke of Clarence, had had a tainder placed on him. And we learned in the last episode that a tainder is when your titles and lands are revoked. So that was kind of Henry Tudor throwing him a bone because he didn't have a reason to give Earl of Warwick to this prince. Um, and it is his political enemy, 
but he did it anyways. And the Edward Plantagenet was still kept in prison, even though he was also confirmed as Earl of Warwick. So from Henry's point of view, things are looking great, right? He's got the crown. He's got a wife. He's got a son. He's got this fancy new rose that dictates that uh, <laughs> the Wars of the Roses are over and they've united the two houses. And the only male line descendant who could even think of taking the, thr- the throne from Henry Tudor is in jail, right? This is the moment where like the mission accomplished banner needs to come down behind. Right, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> This is the George Bush mission accomplished banner (laughs) until something happens here, which is he wasn't the only one left. So you're right, Tyler, there is somebody. And if you thought that there were no more twists and turns and cliffhangers to be had in the War of the Roses. Well, here's at least one more. Uh, In Burgundy in 1490, so we're talking east-central France, who should emerge but Prince Richard? One of the supposedly murdered princes in the tower is alive. (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) This is um, a huge shock and obviously a bad situation for Henry. Um, But this is seven years after he was last seen and he shows up. Um, He appears in public. He's ready to tell what happened to him and his brother in that tower and where he's been for those seven years. Um, According to Richard, his brother Edward was indeed murdered, um, but he'd been spared. um, Richard had been spared by the murderers because of his age and his innocence. So Richard, if you remember, was the younger brother. So the older brother was killed. Younger brother was spared. Um, But he was required to swear an oath that you're going to keep your identity secret for, you know, an an unspecified amount of years um, in exchange for your life. And he claimed that from 1483, which was the last time he was kind of seen, to 1490, this moment when he's kind of stepping out into society again, he'd lived in Europe, uh, moving around under the protection of Yorkist loyalists. Um, and he had a guardian, a man named Sir Edward Brampton. Um, and when Edward Brampton decided to return to England, um, Prince Richard was left free. He kind of had his moment to escape more or less. Mm -hmm. And he then declared his true identity and Richard is back in the game. Now, for obvious reasons, this is a problem for Henry, right? Um, you know, you've got one of the supposedly... One of this, the line that's Richard, um, Richard III supposedly wiped out to take power. Well, he's back. So he would have a claim over Richard if he were alive, but he's not. Henry defeated Richard. And so now, um, so now this new Prince Richard can go toe to toe with Henry. Well, uh, the newly resurrected Prince Richard goes to Ireland and he attempts to raise an army uh, to back him in a bid to invade, um, you know, do what Henry did, invade England take the crown from the king Mm -hmm. that's what henry did to richard the third it all ended the bad battle of bosworth field um henry got the crown and prince richard is like let's do the same thing so he goes to ireland which is a great place if you're ever looking for people who are mad at the english go to ireland you're gonna find (laughs) he goes to ireland and he's like all right who's with me let's do this um long story short it doesn't really work 
So he heads back to the continent and he, he um, actually makes fr- um, friends with the French. The royals received, um, receive him, recognize him as, as the legitimate heir. Um, but he eventually has a falling out with King Charles VIII. Um, King Charles needed to um, kind of be, he had important relationships with England. And Henry was like, you can't be supporting, you know, this new guy who's really wants to kill me. You can't be supporting, you know, my enemy. And so King Charles is like, okay, sorry, the French aren't on your side anymore. Um, However, during his time in the French court, a few things happened. He was publicly recognized as Richard of Shoebury by Margaret of Burgundy. So she was the widow of Charles the Bold, sister of Edward IV, Mm. and thus the aunt of those princes in the tower. So Richard's aunt comes out and says, yes, this is my nephew, Richard. He's alive and he is the rightful heir to the uh, to the throne of England um, during his time being friends over in France and trying to, you know, um, win people to his side. He attended the funeral of the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick III. He was invited to that as a head of state and was recognized during those proceedings and was declared, um, you know, welcome, basically welcome to the stage. Richard IV of England. Oh, wow. So he had international support or at least recognition that he was this legitimate heir. Um, His own aunt, um, Margaret of Burgundy, is like, yep, this is my nephew. He didn't die in the tower. Um, So Henry VII has a contender on his hand. Um, Maybe now would be a good time to tell you, pull the rug out once again, uh, that this man was not, in fact, Richard (laughs) IV. The rightful king of England. I'm so um, disappointed. I know. It would have been great. <laughs> um, in, in a story full of Hollywood moments where it's like, surely this can't be what happened. Finally, we have one where, okay, that's actually not what Wait, happened. It's guys. too far-fetched. <laughs> yeah. Of all the too good to be trues, this one truly was. Um, so this man who is parading across Europe trying to raise armies um, and even convincing, whether actually convincing or just, you know, uh, a declaration that was um, suitable to to her, to Margaret of Burgundy. He's even getting support from people saying, oh, yeah, this is definitely him. Um, this man's name was Perkin Warbeck. Now, who was Perkin Warbeck? Well, that's hard to say because he spent a not insignificant portion of his life saying, my name is Richard IV, the true king of England. <laughs> um, so to really dig into who he was is a little bit complicated. He did eventually give a confession which was given under duress. So there's people who question it, but Mm -hmm. there are elements of it um, that can at least be mostly corroborated. So um, apparently Perkin Warbeck was Flemish. We think his dad um, had a government position in the city of Tournai in present day Belgium. And those family ties, we kind of think we know who his mother is. And those names that he gave, all of that was backed up. There was a guy with his dad's name, who had that position in that town. And so we think that he was probably telling the truth that he was Flemish. He lived in present day Belgium. Um, And so that mostly is probably true. Um, Warbeck, as he grew, had um, kind of a wanderlust. He, He wanted to go out and see the world. And he eventually traveled to Cork, Ireland in 1491 when he was about 17. And there he learned to speak English because he was from the continent. He wouldn't have spoken it. 
Um, he claims that upon being this is this is great. This is listen to his justification for how this happened. So he's he's kicking it in in Ireland. Um, he was dressed in fine silk clothes. He was involved in like the fabric trade and he, he got himself some fancy silk clothes and just random citizens of Cork who were Yorkists saw him and demanded to do him the honor as a member of the Royal House of York. <laughs> and he said they did this because they were resolved on gaining. So they just saw him and they were like, look at the, I, I, I mean, I'm reading between the lines a little bit of this weird story he tells, but like, look at this mighty man. He is fit to be the king of England. <laughs> and so, and of course, like I said, the, the Irish are always ready to, you know, cause mischief in England. And so he said they were, they were resolved on gaining revenge on Henry, the king of England. And so they decided that he should claim to be the younger son of Edward IV. So he's like, hey, look, the Irish made me do it anyways. And besides, my clothes looked awesome. So it's not that big of a stretch. <laughs> Um, this leads to something called the Warbeck conspiracy, because there were those in England who accepted this lie, whether out of a sincere belief or just a desire to overthrow a king that they knew. Now, I'm sure our modern day audiences can't imagine large group of people accepting a dubious claim just because they don't <laughs> like the person in power. Um, but it is kind of hard to parse. Like, right. Did these people actually think? Yeah. That, you know, Perkin Warbeck was was truly a prince or were they just like, hey, this was a great way to oust Henry, who we don't like. But either way, there were there was pro Yorkist sympathy in England and it involved important figures. Um, and they made it known that they were prepared to support Warbeck in a, you know, a coup, a, 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 an uprising against the king. These included um, some names that I'll rattle off really fast. They're not that important, except for the fact that they were, uh, it's not important to know the names, but these were important people. So um, a lord named Lord Fitzwater, Sir Simon Montfort, Sir, um, Sir Thomas Thwaites, who was an ex-chancellor of the Exchequer, Sir William Stanley, the Lord Chamberlain, and Sir Robert Clifford. So those are some of the big names who were like, we're on board. Um, Clifford actually went to Europe and then wrote back home to um, like-minded people and were like, yep, this guy definitely is actually Prince Richard. And so, again, hard to say who was sincere and who was, um, you know, kind of faking it. But, wow, there are people who believe this. And once this was discovered that kind of within his ranks, there were people who, you know, secretly held allegiance to this pretender to the throne, King Henry acted quickly, as you can imagine you'd have to. Mm -hmm. He ordered the group of supporters rounded up and put on trial. They were all arrested, um, along with some others that weren't listed in that list um, who were supporters of Perkin Warbeck. They were given show trials in January of 1495, and all of them were initially condemned to death. Some of those people escaped um, their, their death sentences, um, one of them because he ratted out a bunch of other people, and so he was kind of pardoned. But several of the people who were caught in the Warbeck conspiracy did indeed get their heads chopped clean off. Um, so this was no joke. And, um, you know, the next chapter shows us how much of a um, not a joke this was, because Warbeck on two occasions attempted to invade England with an army to dethrone Henry. Hmm. So it happened twice. And spoiler alert, it went poorly both times. So the first time... Um, kind of resulted in something called the Battle of Deal, which was Deal was the place that um, that Perkin Warbeck ended up landing his his invasion. Um, 
it immediately stopped and Warbeck's army was immediately stopped. They heard that this ding dong was coming over in a boat and loyal Henry loyalists were there waiting and his small army was immediately crushed. Um, This really struck me. This is kind of a tangent, but 150 men in his small army were killed before he even got off the boat. So his feet had not even touched English soil before 150 of his men died. And if you need a better like metaphor for the futility of war, going to war on someone else's behalf, like how would you like that to be the way that you died? You were one of the 150 people who died for this mm. fake pretender to the king and he didn't it you know it wasn't even in some glorious landing he was still on the boat he wasn't even he hadn't even made it and um you know onto the onto onto english soil um he quickly retreated sailed away leaving 150 of his dead men on the shore um and he actually went to scotland another place you might find people who are unhappy with the english <laughs> um so he goes to scotland now, James the Fourth was the king of Scotland at the time, and he saw the wisdom in cozying up with Warbeck because it gave him some leverage um, on the international stage. And there was a lot of things going on between Spain and um, Spain and Scotland at the time that we can't get into now. But um, James was like, hey, if I can cozy up, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So if I don't like the English and this guy's trying to take out Henry, if I cozy up to him, it can kind of give me some clout um, to the extent that in September of 1496, James IV prepared to invade England with Warbeck. Oh, they mounted wow. an army and a red gold and silver banner was made for Warbeck as the Duke of York. He was given his, you know, his Duke of York emblem. James's armor was gilded and painted and the Royal artillery was prepared. This was a full invasion. Um, I'm going to have to skip through a bunch of this, but, According to an English record, um, Warbeck and his Scott army penetrated at least four miles into England with a, a royal banner, the banner of the Duke of York, displayed. And they destroyed three or four kind of forts. Um, on the 25th of September, 1496, however, um, an English army commanded by Lord Neville approached from Newcastle and they immediately split. And James kind of washed his hands of the whole thing and cut his ties with Perkin Warbeck. Um, There was a second invasion, and this one leads to the death of uh, Perkin Warbeck, pretender to the throne. So on September 7th, 1497, so almost exactly a year later, Warbeck um, decides to land again with a small army. And this time he tries to um, kind of take advantage of an uprising in Cornwall. So the Cornish... Um, were um, having a spat with the king and they were like, we want to, you know, we, we don't recognize the king. Um, the kind of thing that, a, that a, um, the king of England might have to deal with, you know, um, some small uprising or unpleasantness among the peasants or whatever. And Warbeck realizes there's a bunch of people in Cornwall mad. So he lands in Cornwall and says, hey, if you're mad at this king, you might as well help me overthrow. This is his plan. Um. He proclaimed, I'm going to put a stop to the tax that you're all that all of you are mad about. Um, and he was actually warmly welcomed. He was declared Richard the Fourth, and um, he raised a Cornish army of about 6000 men 
and um, entered Exeter, the city of Exeter, before advancing on, on the next city, kind of down the line, leading into the heart of England to ostensibly kill Henry and take the throne. Um, but then Henry VII sent his chief general uh, to attack the Cornish. And when Warbeck heard, <laughs> even just heard that the king's scouts were at Glastonbury headed his way, he panicked and deserted his army. So even if Warbeck, you know, for all of his claims, he certainly doesn't have the bearing of a, you know, warlike king of England because he seems to be a pretty terrible and kind of cowardly warrior. Um, in that disastrous second invasion, he was taken prisoner and he was actually kept around for a while. He was imprisoned at court and like kind of he was allowed to like attend feasts and dinners, which doesn't really make a ton of sense. <laughs> Um, however, after eight months of kind of being kept around as a, a sideshow attraction, I guess you could say, um, and being kept in, in prison, he tried to escape. He was held in the tower as, you know, as the, the cliche, throw him in the tower. Um, and he was alongside somebody we've already heard of, um, Edward Plantagenet, the seventh, uh, 17th Earl of Warwick. So the, the, the descendant of Clarence. The only other, as Tyler's pointed out, the only other person who has something of a claim to the throne. So these two are in prison together. And in 1499, they try to escape from the Tower of London. Um, this kind of sours his weird limbo that he was in, where he was obviously a pretender and a traitor to the throne, but sort of kept alive. Um, an escape really soured that for him. He was captured, led from the Tower to Tyburn, London on the 23rd of November, 1499, where he read out a confession, um, you know, explaining all of the evil deeds he has done and he was hanged. And so thus end the days of Perkin Warbeck. But I mean, what an absolutely glorious little side story on the War of the Roses, because it's almost like, look, so many people have used some flimsy bastard, you know, claim to the throne or just been like, well, I don't like you, so I'm going to murder my nephews and take the throne. He's like, look, why can't I try? <laughs> That's sort of like, the, you know, it's changed hands so many times. Why don't I give it, take a crack at it? And it's amazing how far he he got. I mean, raising an army, having support of other heads of state. Um, but he was ultimately um, unsuccessful. And Tyler, you can kind of help fill us in. Um, what happened to Edward Plantagenet? At the, the, his uh, fellow prisoner well let me just say also like it is so crazy that <laughs> Perkin Warbeck got that far and it really tells you so much about the political system not having a peaceful transition of power like Henry Tudor thought that he was establishing right because so many politicians both in England and outside of England, were really looking forward to getting Henry Tudor off the throne. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how much Perkin really had to do with that, right? Because it seems like every step of the way, things were just given to him. Armies came around. He got, you know, like, a, uh, what's it called? Like, he was backed by his quote unquote aunt Margaret of course, yeah. <laughs> who was lying through her teeth, but was like, yeah, this is my nephew. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it shows you that the, the wounds were still there. They weren't really ready uh, to continue on without, uh, with um, the Wars of the Roses being over. So 
what's his name? Perkin Warbeck was so Perkin Warbeck was hanged for yeah. trying to escape the tower. Uh, Edward Plantagenet also tried to escape the tower, and Edward was also caught. And for his role in this, in trying to escape from the tower, he was beheaded. And when his head fell onto the ground, that was the last drop of male line Plantagenet blood left in England. It was completely done with Edward Plantagenet. And what I tell you about the curse of Edward, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you can't be naming these kids Edward. Um, but there it is. Henry VII has not only taken the crown of England, married Elizabeth York, had a son who can inherit the throne, but now all of his potential claimants who have any kind of, you know, noble blood kind of status that could get them the throne, they're gone. And we will, in the next episode, close out this series with a kind of epilogue. Uh, we will synthesize a couple of the key concepts that we've seen emerging in this narrative but we haven't had a chance to discuss and we will also take things full circle we will talk about henry the seventh's son henry the eighth and remember in the very beginning the execution of margaret pole we will talk about who margaret pole was and why henry the eighth had reason to execute her because of the wars of the roses No footnotes today. Thanks for listening. Join us next time in our last episode on the Wars of the Roses when we return to the question of Margaret Pole and why she was executed by King Henry VIII. We'll see you then.